0: Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join Join us Inside inside the the morgue. Morgue.
1: inside the we're your hosts jess and alice and we are back with a classic csi episode for today we're dissecting season 5 episode 19 titled 4x4 so this episode has four different deaths that all happen around the same time and this does happen in the real world of forensics there's times that we get call after call for scenes to respond to and autopsies to do so i do appreciate that they showed everything kind of happening all at once So, enough of an intro, let's get into this episode of Inside the Morgue.
0: So, this episode of CSI opens with a guy driving his car, and it looks like he's just leaving like a taco stand, he's trying to enjoy his taco, and then suddenly a Hummer, driving the wrong way on the road, runs right over him in the windshield. Glass shatters everywhere, and the man hits his head pretty hard against the driver's side window, leaving a defect on the window from the hit. Cut to Gil Grissom arriving on scene and one of the other investigators explains that this is a hit and run, considering the other driver is nowhere to be seen. The Hummer was going the wrong way on a one-way street, and the guy in the Fiera car is, believe it or not, lucky to be alive. No one saw the driver of the Hummer get out, and people who drive $100,000 vehicles don't usually run away from them and leave them abandoned on the street, so why did this driver do that? Grissom says they are slammed that night, and there is one investigator per case that night. He looks at the scene and says that the tread mark shapes indicate acceleration. Tread marks are a type of pattern or impression evidence. There's scuff marks, which refer to tire marks made by a rotating vehicle, acceleration, or flat tire. This is the type he's talking about here since it's indicated acceleration. There's yaw marks, which are made by a tire that is turning or sliding sideways parallel to the wheel's axis. And there's skid marks, which are made by a locked wheel caused by the application of the brakes. Print marks are made by a rolling tire, and scrub marks are when a wheel lock due to damage makes a mark. Like most evidence, tire track can be used to help with identifications of the perpetrator by placing the suspect at the scene by matching the tire with a tire on a suspected vehicle. The tire mark tread from the Hummer makes them believe that he was either trying to make a getaway or this was a joyride in a stolen car. They notice a red smear on the door of the Hummer, which looked like the driver had blood on his hands. On the airbag of the Hummer, Grissom finds some clear gel-like substances that indicates that the driver hit his face on the airbag. At the crime lab, he is informed that police had just called to say that the Humvee from the hit-and-run was carjacked earlier that night. The actual owners of the Hummer are brought in for questionings and say that they had just won the car in a raffle and had only had it for 20 minutes before it was stolen. <laughs> I can't believe that that I, of luck.
1: I, <laughs> I would be the type of person that has such bad luck like that.
0: Yeah, you know, same. <laughs> Let's never enter a raffle for a car. we we'll have it stolen. <laughs> the couple can't agree on what the person who stole the Hummer looks like. The husband's claiming that he was a bigger guy while the wife was saying, no, he was skinny as stick man. Grissom goes back to the scene of the carjacking now that it's daylight and tries to get any evidence that they can. And this is actually about like three blocks from the crash site. And a police officer is telling Grissom that this is where the Hummer was stolen from. We see Grissom photograph blood on a chain link fence near the scene, which is a green flag. And he notices a trail of blood drops on the ground that he does not photograph, but he does photograph a bloody bandana at the end of the blood drip trail in the grass. He then picks the bandana up with a clamp or hemostat type device. And we'll give him another green flag for this because he's not using his bare hands. to contaminate the evidence. They learned from the last time <laughs> <laughs> that we watched CSI when they were just bare-handing things. We love
1: progression.
0: <laughs> he then places it in a bag. He then sees a police car with sirens blaring, go by, followed by a normal looking car, also going very fast. He bags a mandana in what does look like to be like a Ziploc bag sandwich, which I think in our very first episode they did with evidence too, when they found the implant in the spine. That's true. It did look like a Ziploc. It was just like a Ziploc baggie. It didn't like mark that it was evidence or anything, but <laughs> you know, maybe it's all he had at the scene. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt for now. So, cut to where the police were off to. We see them apprehending a man from a convenience store after trying to shoplift. This man has blood on the leg of his jeans, and it also looks like the convenience store owner has blood, like, all over his vest, so I don't know what kind of altercation they got into, but it looked messy. They were brawling. Apparently. Like, it was, like, splattered on his vest, and I was like, how?
1: He had it all over.
0: How did this happen? And he just had... The guy in the jeans just had it really bad on him with his right thigh, Mm. I think. I was like, how did your leg get all over his (laughs) chest? Whose blood is this? Is everyone okay? (laughs) So an investigator shows up and stops the officers, saying that he fits the description of a suspect in a hit-and-run. The man claims that he was just trying to steal a 40 from the convenience store. He wasn't trying to steal a car, but he's taken into custody anyway. Back at the lab, Grissom says they matched the robber's blood on the gear shift and the bandana that they had found in the alley. We cut to the lab tech telling Grissom that the oily stain that was collected from the Hummer's airbag was, in fact, oil. That's what it was. I love that. He's like, well, guess what? It's oil. It's a little
1: less dramatic. And more
0: specifically, it was lard. It appeared that there were several types of fibers in the oil. And Eliza was running it again to indicate that there was pork, beef, chicken, and possibly human flesh. So I think we've talked about Eliza before, but Eliza stands for enzyme-linked immunoassay. It's a common lab test to detect antibodies in blood. The lab tech says that he doubts they'll be able to get any DNA from it because it was all, quote, cooked up. Grissom gets the idea to check out the taco place near the scene of the hit and run. He questions the owner of the taco stand and asks if there had been any trouble. The man says there had been a scuffle the other day, but nothing he couldn't handle. We see a flashback of the man that they had just had in custody and another man approaching the taco stand late at night, trying to rob it. Taco stand owner stabs the first robber in the leg, explaining why he had blood all down his jeans when he was brought in. And then he throws hot oil in the other man's face, which would connect to the oil with meat fibers in it found on the Hummer's airbag. Grissom makes a call in and says that they need to check the hospitals for a burn patient, They find the other suspect at the hospital and arrest him, and we see a flashback of him tying his white bandana around his friend-slash-accomplice's bleeding leg. We also see this man stealing the Hummer from the couple who had just won it in a raffle and driving it to run over the taco stand because he was so mad. He
1: was mad this person didn't let them rob him. So
0: dramatic. However, he hit the car that we saw at the beginning of the episode on the way there and then decided to flee the scene. And Grissom says... That this is the dumbest thing he's ever heard. And, you know, I absolutely agree. A hundred percent. So dumb. <laughs> I, such a dumb
1: crime. So stupid.
0: It was, I couldn't believe, I was watching the beginning of this episode and I was like, that's really the direction they're going with? Okay. Taco <laughs> stand was trying to be robbed and. I think the writers got kind of with All right. <laughs> At least they addressed it, though. Kristen was like, this one's right, dumb. Right, yeah. And we're like, yeah, it is. We know it
1: is. We accept that. But
0: I, I liked it. It made me laugh.
1: So, while Grissom was at the scene, another CSI was at a car show where the second scene of the night was. A man is introducing an RV called the G4700, however, when the curtain pulls back, there is a dead woman lying on the floor of the open RV. Warwick Brown arrives on scene, and he's told that the victim is Lisa Schumacher, age 29. There was no video surveillance on the floor, and the police working the event don't remember the last time they saw her. Warwick believes that Lisa was a model or a showgirl working the car show for extra cash. Warwick asks if there's a time of death, and the CSI turns the body over to look for signs of lividity. While this is a great postmortem change to look for, lividity alone cannot tell you exact time of death, it's just an estimated time frame. So I have to give a red flag here, because the CSI looks at lividity and he goes, oh, time of death around 4am.
0: Yeah, he didn't give a time frame. It was just, up 4 a.m.
1: Yep. Liver mortis begins to set in about 30 minutes to 2 hours right after death, and it reaches maximum lividity at 8 to 12 hours and becomes fixed or blanched between 12 to 18 hours. He notices a laceration on the lower lip, and it's a common misconception that the terms laceration and cut can be used interchangeably. But they're actually very different. A laceration is break or tear in soft tissue as a result of blunt force trauma, whereas a cut is caused by sharp force trauma.
0: I remember when I first learned that, it was like one of my favorite fun facts to tell people. Whenever I heard (laughs) someone misuse the term laceration, I'm like, actually.
1: Right, yeah.
0: I was so annoying. I still am. Actually, did you know a laceration is caused by a blunt object? Yes, Alice, you never shut up about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, I mean, we went to school for all this, so... Yeah. We should be spitting all this knowledge out.
0: Heck yeah, we have a podcast to do it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> she has contusions, bruising on the neck, and petechiae, which, as we've talked before, are pinpoint spots of bleeding around the eyes. It also appears that she was strangled, possibly raped. Warwick notices streaks on the body's shoulder that doesn't look like blood. He looks under her nails and sees possible hair fragments and some skin under her nails, indicating that she fought back against her attacker. Any evidence under a person's fingernails is considered trace evidence, and to collect this, you can either do like nail clippings, swab under the nail, or get a nail scraping. And this is regularly done on sexual assault cases or in manual strangulation cases. The model RV is being examined, and they're using an alternate light source to look for any substances, like blood. They're actually using a UV light, which is purple, with an orange filter on the top of the flashlight. So, like, the color theory comes in there because those are complementary colors. With that, you can see any of like, stains or liquids that are present that you couldn't normally see with, like, your bare eyes. Mm-hmm. They find a cell phone in the bathroom, and Warwick looks in the toilet with a UV light and sees some type of fluid. He swabs it and collects it for evidence. He also finds a used condom in the toilet. At the autopsy of Lisa, Robbins is saying that the cause of death is asphyxia due to manual strangulation. So strangulation is defined as external pressure to the neck that causes sustained impairment of air or blood flow. In manual strangulations, this is compression of the neck by using either one or both hands or a forearm or the knee. So one of the things found at autopsy during a strangulation case would be like a hemorrhage to the laryngeal muscle. And I also, during this autopsy, huge red flag, they have terrible lighting. And every single autopsy scene.
0: It was so bad, this one. I don't know why. You can't see anything. I don't know if it's just because I haven't watched CSI in a while, but I was like, wow, it is dark. I was like, is it my screen? Like, <laughs> I can't. It's just like the
1: one central light that they have, and that's it.
0: Someone has to pay the electric bill there. That's not good. There's no lights on.
1: So Robbins is telling CSI investigator Catherine Willows that whoever did this used excessive force. There's bleeding in the neck muscles and fractures in the cornu of the thyroid cartilage and hyoid bone. During our autopsies, we do a layered neck dissection to see all of the neck muscles and definitively tell what muscles were injured, whether it was soft tissue damage or in the deep musculature. And the neck muscles that we commonly strip away are sternocleidomastoid, omohyoid, and sternohyoid. Catherine asks if he did a wet mount, and Robin says that he did, and he found mobile sperm in the vaginal canal. Warwick found several used condoms at the scene, but Robbins notes that there was an absence of trauma in the vaginal canal, and the sperm was found at a shallow depth, not indicative of penetration. So back at the car show, we see the Hummer from the first crime scene being given to a couple that will later have it carjacked, and Warwick is questioning the man hosting the event. He's telling them about the many women that he has working the event, and... They ask him about Lisa, and he says that he represents her. The girls who party make the money, and if they party with clients, they make more money. They tell the man that Lisa's dead, and he is just in disbelief. He says there's 400,000 people and millions of square feet to cover at the event, so he couldn't have known that she died. Warwick asks why she was there after hours if the event ends at 10. The man says he doesn't keep tabs on all the girls that he has working for him. One of the girls that he does have working comes over crying, says that she had a terrible morning, and he's just awful to her. He makes me so mad how he treats these girls. He
0: was... I had to pause this part of the episode several times, because I was getting so mad. And he made... Oh my god. He makes some comments about how Lisa was almost 30, so she was, like, past her prime, and she was... I was... Right. As someone who was 29, I was personally offended.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I would be offended too. I'm offended for you for what you had to watch. Thank
0: you. I appreciate that. I would have been mad even if I wasn't 29 cuz 30 is not old. All right. We need to it's We not. need to stop making people feel like they're old when they're 30. I know I have a lot of personal stuff going on with that, but
1: Alice has a personal vendetta against this show I now. Do. So at the lab, they get the results back from Lisa's fingertips. He found non 9 spermicide, which indicates that she may have touched a condom, and it traces of PVP, sorbitol, carbomer, and hydroxypropyl cellulose, which may have come from a hair gel, meaning that she scratched her attacker's scalp. Also, the streaks that Warwick had seen on her body that he knew wasn't blood turned out to be instant tanning lotion. Warwick finds that Lisa had a roommate and her prints were also on the RV. So she's brought in for questioning and says that she worked at that display sometimes. And they say that she looked suspicious because she was raffling off the Hummer just hours after her roommate was found dead at the same car show. But she says she didn't have a choice and she's broke and she just has to pay bills and her car insurance. She's just trying to work.
0: I I know. I was kind of mad at them for that. I was like, she has to work. They're shaming
1: all these women.
0: (laughs) Exactly. She was probably very upset and had to go to work still. Yeah. You think Donnie, the jerk who runs the show, would let her take a day off? No. He's a jerk.
1: She confesses to Donnie, the man who runs the show, who had asked her and Lisa to hang out with a man named Mr. DeLuca after work with two other girls, Dana and Lane. They had dinner, partied, and gambled, and then he took the girls back to the convention center. Cut to the girls with Mr. DeLuca in the RV, and he's really rude to Lisa. Lisa does not deserve this. He basically calls her old, even though we've said that she's only 29, which isn't old. In the interrogation room, the roommate is saying that she left as soon as she could and took a cab home. She says DeLuca didn't want anything to do with Lisa, and Lisa had locked herself in the bathroom, and that was the last time she saw her. They bring DeLuca in for questioning, and he doesn't want to give his fingerprints or DNA, and they're basically like, well, if you don't, then we're going to get a court order, so it's up to you. And DeLuca says that his DNA would be all over Lisa because she planted it. In the flashback, Lisa's crying on the bathroom floor, and she sees a condom in the toilet, and DeLuca walks into the bathroom, surprised that she's still there, and he thinks that Lisa was trying to impregnate herself with his sperm from the condom so that she could get his money because she was, quote, expiring like spoiled milk. I did not even with this. This was the cringiest thing I think I've ever watched.
0: It wasn't even like it was just one jerk man. It All of them, every person they interacted with was in agreement. It was awful. And this woman, the actress who played this woman, was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Stunning. And they're like, ugh look at this. And uh, like, I I was so annoyed the entire time.
1: The detective says that seems like a good reason DeLuca would want to kill her. And DeLuca says if he had killed her, he wouldn't have put her in his own motor coach, especially when he was showing it the next day. He says he told the convention authorities what she was trying to do, and after analyzing the condoms, they said they found leukosperm and epithelial cells, which are just cells that cover the inside and outside surfaces of the body, and they're found on skin, blood vessels, and organs. They found that from Lisa's vaginal canal on the inside of the condom. So, like, turning a sock inside out.
0: I liked that analogy when, I think it was Catherine <laughs> said that when they were trying to explain yeah. the situation. She was like, oh, it's like turning a sock. And I was like, okay, that's a good visual.
1: This would support DeLuca's story. However, the epithelial cells underneath her fingernails don't match DeLuca. So they go to question Donnie and ask him about his hair gel. Warwick sees a scratch on his scalp with a magnifying glass and asks how it got there. And he claims he scratched himself? Question mark?
0: Not that aggressively.
1: Right? That was like a deep scratch.
0: Yeah, there was a scab.
1: Lisa had pissed off Donnie's best client, so Donnie strangled her to death. And he was going to blame it on DeLuca so he wouldn't lose any other business from other clients.
0: If men have anything, it's the audacity.
1: These men are trash. The
0: audacity. So we're at our third scene of the night right now, and a woman named Gwen, who worked the convention center and went crying to Donnie earlier, who he was really rude to and pissed us off, is arriving at her trainer's house. She rings the doorbell and calls inside for Paul to let her in. When Paul doesn't answer, she looks in the window and sees him dead on the floor. Sarah Seidel and Greg Sanders arrive at the scene. The victim is Paul Charles, a 28-year-old competition bodybuilder, and I will say nobody mentioned his age. He's almost 30. Sorry, I had to. So he's a 28-year-old competition bodybuilder and personal trainer. All the windows in the house are closed, the door is locked, and there's no sign of forced entry. They enter the workout room Paul was found in and see the body on the ground with, like, red slash pink discoloration on his face. And the detective asked Gwen if there was anyone in the house when she arrived. She said no and that Paul was cutting down on clients so he could train for Mr. Las Vegas next month. He had canceled her last two workout sessions. She said her and Paul had, quote, gotten physical once last month. She had initiated the kiss, but he had stopped it and claimed that he just had a headache. Sarah is taking photos and Greg is investigating the workout equipment to find a potential murder weapon. Sarah swaps some blood off the floor and says that the killer wouldn't even have to be Paul's size. They would just need the right weapon, the right leverage, and the power of surprise. We see Robbins in the morgue starting the autopsy on Paul, starting with an external exam describing the appearance of the victim. He is a well-developed Caucasian male, and the musculature appears hypertrophied. Although the marking on the face appears to indicate blood force trauma, there is absence of bruising. So this means this could have been a post-mortem blow, because no blood flow means no bruising. And we know dead men don't bleed. Dead
1: men don't bleed. Dead men don't bruise either. (laughs) Dead men
0: don't (laughs) breathe. (laughs) Breathe. They They don't. don't. (laughs) (laughs) They don't not what I meant to say, but it's true. They don't breathe, bleed, or bruise. So we see Greg investigating at Paul's house, going through the nightstand, where he finds a 9mm handgun and several syringes, all of which he photographs. Sarah looks through Paul's planner. Sarah says there's no blood on any of the poles or the weights. So we cut back to the morgue and see Robbins stating that rigor mortis is full and extremely rigid, and liver mortis is posterior and fixed. Prior to blood coagulation, liver is unfixed, so if the body is moved, the blood will repool in whatever part of the body is closest to the ground. Liver becomes fixed when the blood coagulates, preventing the blood from repooling if the body is moved to another position. On the bilateral, both sides of the buttocks during the exam are multiple puncture marks with faint purple ecchymosis, which is a fancy word for bruising. There's a laceration at the base of the scalp, and loss of blood from this is significant, but not fatal. And the left eye socket appears very swollen. So Robbins presses against the eyeball and dark, fluid, pus-like substance just starts oozing out.
1: This was really gross. Like, I don't know what possessed him to want to poke the eye.
0: I don't know either. It wouldn't have been my first thought. No. For sure. Like, you can tell if
1: an eye is bulging or not, but you don't have to poke it. Right?
0: I don't know. (laughs) He didn't even use a syringe or anything to try and get, like, fluid out. He's just like... (laughs) let's see what happens (laughs) cut to a hazmat team escorting greg and sarah out of the house saying that there is a biohazard situation and they need to be decontaminated they're taken to a tent outside and hosed down back in the morgue we see robin's wearing all his ppe green flag we do love ppe while doing a head exam we see him cut the skull with a bone saw however once again as we always see the skull cap kind of just easily pops off without any other tools like a skull chisel but I will say they did have more noises this time.
1: Yeah, I was impressed by the noises. There
0: was like the popping noise. Like the like cracking. The pulling, yeah, the cracking and like the Velcro-y type noise, mm-hmm. which that's what it sounds like. It
1: does sound like that. <laughs> it
0: does sound like Velcro. There was also an absence of any kind of Duramater here too, which we have seen in past episodes we have watched. Robbins then just kind of... <laughs> Picks the brain up out of the head. Just bare hand, Not bare hands. He had gloves on, but no tools. He scooped it out. Picked it up, took it out. I wish it was that easy. Right? But My job would be so easy no. if it was that simple. It'd be done so quick. So, as you might have assumed, this is a red flag because you still need to cut out the brain. It's still attached to stuff inside. There's a brain stem. <laughs> like, it doesn't just fall out of your head you can't just scoop it out you still need to use a scalpel so in order to remove the brain you make a u-cut around the head going from ear to ear you peel the scalp back which can be difficult sometimes and it is a hand and thumb workout and I was actually just thinking about this recently I was working out and my forearms have gotten a lot bigger definitely definitely
1: (laughs) after like a year of doing this straight like my arms get a workout every single day
0: oh yeah hands, my hands and my forearms are like sore at the end of a long day. So you then bone saw through the skull and then you take the skull breaker and you free the calvarium from the rest of their head. At this point in the autopsy, peeling the calvarium from the head sounds a lot like Velcro because the dura mater like clings to the top of the skull since it's there to protect the brain. So this is the part where you need to use your scalpel. You have to physically cut the spinal cord in order for the brain to get out of the head. We also take the pituitary gland out, which is like a little peanut that sits inside of the head. After we take the brain out and we get the little peanut out, we then strip the rest of the dura mater from the base of the skull, which is also kind of difficult and it's hard to tear away sometimes. And again, another forearm workout. It's
1: also more difficult the older the decedent is because it's just like so thin and it's so like clinged on to the base of the skull. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Definitely more difficult if they're older. So Sarah and Greg are back at the morgue, and Robbins is telling them that the black pus in the eye is indicative of an airborne agent, so he had to take the precaution and get them out of there and decontaminated. So bacteria and fungi are just a few infectious agents that are spread through airborne transmission, and Robbins says he found that Paul had mycosis, which is a disease caused by exposure to mold, and the mold in this instance is... Rizipus or Rizay, forgive me if I say that wrong, he assures Sarah and Greg that they are not at risk because they have healthy immune systems. The syringes at Paul's house were decadurabolin, cestinon, and oxydrolone, which are all steroids. And immunosuppression is a common side effect of using steroids, which is true. So steroids actually do reduce the production of antibodies, which is basically suppressing your immune system. So Paul's face looked like it was smashed because it had collapsed from the inside. Very gross. But like also kind of fascinating. The disease had caused the bones around the sinuses and the eye socket to deteriorate. And this is true as spores grow inside the orbitals and nasal cavity, they destroy the surrounding host tissue. Black masses can be seen in these cavities as a result. If the orbits are destroyed, the eyes may bulge and this could cause blindness. And if the cranial cavity is destroyed, this could cause a life-threatening stroke or a brain bleed. Rhizopus or Rhizae likes to grow on human tissue, and mold grows outward as spores reproduce and are carried away from the source. Now the team has to pinpoint the source of the human tissue that the original mold came from to cause Paul's death. Sarah and Greg go back to the scene with a lot of PPE, which we love once again. They're wearing their gas masks and they're looking for the original source of the mold. They're cutting away at the walls and they Keeps seeing the mold getting progressively worse and worse as they're going along, indicating that they're getting closer to the source. Sarah tells Greg to open the blinds and she sprays the wall near the area where the mold was getting really bad on the inside. I think she sprayed Blue Star. Would this have been Blue Star, Jess? I could
1: only think that it had to be Blue Star because it did luminesce blue, and Blue Star is the only one to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so it would make certain reagents on the wall luminesce. So they see what they assume is blood as a result of the luminol spray. They open the wall where they see the blood and find human tissue in the wall. There is a hole in the air duct, and it looks like a bullet hole, specifically a 9mm bullet hole. Red flag, though, because nothing at all was photographed before Sarah just reaches her hands in and yanks the bullet out of the wall. But it does look like someone was shot here. The bullet pushed blood and tissue through the wall, and a water from a pipe leak fed the mold to grow inside the wall. They ran all the names from the victim's planner and all the names checked out except for a woman named Tiffany, which was the name of a known sex worker and her family had reported her missing last week. Sarah also mentions that steroid abuse can cause shrunken testicles, impotence, and roid rage. They collected a sample of DNA from Tiffany's apartment and are going to run it against the DNA against the bullet. Greg references The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe, which, if you don't know, spoiler alert when the guy is murdered the murderer claims he hears the heart beating under the floorboards and he confesses to his crimes. So he was thinking of that during this case. And then he says he likes to read the classics if they are about dismembered bodies. Me too. Relatable. <laughs> yeah. I also, I do love Telltale Heart. I was very excited when he mentioned
1: Telltale Heart. I was like, <gasps> reading the Edgar Allan Poe short stories when I was in like middle school, I don't think I appreciated them enough as I do now.
0: I have a, I think it was from my brother for Christmas one year, he got me, like, a giant book of, like, Poe's collected works. Oh, that's
1: cool. I'll
0: bring it into work one day.
1: So our last rewind of the episode shows a woman walking down the street, asking a man who she thinks is Chester to move from lying on the bench so she can sit down and rest her feet. But the real Chester then turns around the corner and she realizes the man on the bench is not Chester, but it is a dead little boy. He can't be more than 12 or 13, and they don't think the boy is homeless because his jeans look kind of expensive. The boy is just developing rigor, so they estimate time of death to be no more than 8 hours, and rigor usually sets in between 2 and 4 hours after death, and it's usually dissipated by 36 hours, So, and this all depends on environmental factors too. Rigor also happens more rapidly if the person is exerting a lot of energy before death, because rigor is a result of the lack of ATP or adenosine triphosphate in the muscle tissue. If someone was exerting a lot of energy before death, they would have depleted a lot of ATP, meaning after death, rigor would set much quicker. So back in the show, they're confused that no one noticed him at a busy bus stop, but they think that this might be a body dump and someone just covered him with a blanket. Nick Stokes notices tracks on the grass. They look like they belong to a cart of some type. At the morgue, Nick lifts fibers off the boy's shirt and pants, and he finds something in the boy's hair and cuts it out. He searches the boys' pockets and finds a Butterfield Academy student lunch program card, and Nick calls the academy and asks for the student roster. Because of their confidentiality, they won't give him the roster until there's a court order, and that could take a lot of time, and they're trying to ID this boy as fast as they can. Then during the autopsy, Robin says that the boy had first and second degree burns. First degree burn or a superficial burn only affects the epidermis or the outer layer of skin, and a second degree burn affects both the epidermis and dermis, which is the second layer of skin. He had a burn to the face that looks like it was from an iron, and he had several hematomas or pool of clotted blood around his arm and a really bad skull fracture. And to them, right now, it seems like it might be a child abuse case. Despite his extensive injuries, he did die of positional asphyxia. So this is a green flag because positional asphyxia is a form of mechanical asphyxia that occurs when a person is immobilized in a position which impairs adequate pulmonary ventilation and this then results in respiratory failure. So looking at his eyes, there was heat damage and there was also damage to his respiratory mucosa as well and that indicates that he was in a small hot space for a long time. So because of the excessive heat that he was in and the small space, The compression of the torso reduces total lung volume, functional, residual capacity, and pulmonary expansion, and this makes it really hard to breathe effectively. So Catherine, one of the other investigators, has a daughter that goes to Butterfield, and she's able to get Nick a copy of the class roster. And I really... He just, like, looks at it for a split second, and he goes... Here, this is the boy.
0: I know. He, like, omens oh, it. He's like, yeah. So I don't know if he had a lead that we didn't see, but he just, like, opens it and finds an address and goes to that house. He, yeah, like, first, it's the first name that he saw, too. And he points to it yeah. and he goes, I'm going here. Was his plan to just, like, Go through every parent. I don't see, like, how that
1: wouldn't be his plan. How do you know who is who from just the name? There's no pictures next to anybody. Yeah,
0: did he just get lucky in the first house he went to was the right one? I would never be that lucky. I would be the unlucky couple that got the Hummer stolen in the beginning of (laughs) the (laughs) episode. So he goes to this house and a teenage girl
1: answers and she says she isn't in school because she's sick and that the whole house is sick. And he asks to see her parents, and she says they aren't home, and Nick peeks inside, sees a keg and lots of solo cups lying around, and then he asks for the parents' cell phone numbers or work numbers. She admits that she had a kegger, and she says her parents are skiing in Vail. She says her father is a lawyer, so she probably shouldn't be talking to Nick without her lawyer present. So Nick asks about her brother. She says that Chase, this is the name that he picked, his name is Chase, says that Chase spent the night at his friend Andy's house. Nick asks to see a picture of Chase, and it looks like their victim. They bring in the friend Andy and his mother. Andy's mother says that Andy was supposed to spend the night at Chase's, but Chase wasn't feeling well, so Andy came home early. Nick says he needs to hear Andy's version, so, like, his mother was talking for him at that point, and that's definitely, like, you're supposed to let the kid talk without parents, so, like, you get the full real story without, like, influence. He says he told his mom that he was sleeping at Chase's, and Chase said that he was sleeping at Andy's. So Andy's mom had no idea that this was the plan. Andy says that they just wanted to see a high school party. Jackie, Chase's sister, caught them and made them leave. They promised to go to Andy's house, but they didn't. They went to the arcade, and Andy walked home while Chase stayed at the arcade playing his games. According to the talks on Chase, his BAC was three times the legal limit. The hairs on Chase's clothes were human, feline, canine, and the fibers were cotton, wool, polyester, and lycra, none of which matched the blanket he was found in. The material found in Chase's hair was melted, vulcanized rubber and thermoplastic elastomers from the sole of a shoe. So Nick concludes that wherever Chase died must have been hot, cramped, and full of other people's hair. We cut to him investigating a laundromat near the arcade, and he finds a sample inside the dryer that matches the one that was in Chase's hair, He also matches the wheels to a laundry cart from the track pattern that was found near the body site. He tries to take the cart out to the grass, but he's unable to get it out of the parking lot. He goes to talk to the manager, and the manager says that people are stealing these carts, so he has a system where the wheels lock if you try to take them too far, and he's the only one with the remote. Nick brings him in for questioning, and he says that there were a couple kids causing trouble at the laundromat, so he chased them out, but he doesn't know what happened after. Nick doesn't buy it because he knows that he's the only one who can wheel a cart out of the lot. Jared, the manager, says that he was having a stressful night, and he had left the laundromat for a minute to clear his head. He came back and found Chase in the dryer, but didn't know if he was dead or not. He says he didn't take him to the hospital, and he left him on the bench because of the liability he would be under. Jared was hoping someone would find Chase and take care of him. Nick interrogates the friend Andy again, accusing him of putting Chase in the dryer because dryers can't lock from the inside. They got a match on fingerprints on the handle, and Andy said that Chase asked him to put him in the dryer and turn it on. They were just trying to have a good time and thought it would be funny.
0: They were just goofing around. Neither of them knew. That would kill him.
1: Andy says it gets fuzzy after that, and then he went home. So we end the CSI episode with the investigators each individually exhausted with their days. They really ended this episode on a bummer.
0: Yeah. It was such a bummer. And I also just want to say, if that sketchy laundromat manager wanted Chase to be found, why did he cover him in a blanket so nobody would see that he was a little boy?
1: That's a really good point. Or why didn't he take him
0: outside of the hospital? Why did yeah, why didn't you just call 911? I know he was scared because it was in his place of work, but God, just I, that that one hit me hard. I hate. I hate yeah. pediatric cases. That one was rough. It was a rough one to end on. Right? Like, they could have, like, flipped around
1: any of yeah. these stories, and the, the episode still would have made sense. They should have
0: ended with the Hummer. Mm-hmm. Nobody died in that one, and it was just, it was just it a was dumb just case. Funny. <laughs> it was just dumb. So, for our true crime this week, we're going to do little shorter stories, shorter blurbs, about four different cases that kind of relate to the four different crimes that were investigated this week in this episode of CSI. So, we're going to start with a stolen Hummer story. In September 2012, in New York City, a 2008 Black Hummer was stolen while a parking attendant was attempting to park it in a garage. And while it was stolen, the attendant jumped on the sideboard and hung on in an attempt to stop the thief, which, that is commitment. I would not. To your job. I would not. I mean, maybe just like in the like the adrenaline rush heat of the moment, you're just like grabbing onto anything, I'm assuming. But this attendant held on until the car blew a red light further down the road, and that was like a little while later. After this, the attendant alerted nearby police, who then began to pursue the suspect. Witnesses saw the driver going the wrong way down 6th Avenue, and he tried to evade police by turning down wrong ways on one-way streets multiple times. As the driver was trying to escape the police chase, he hit the front of a bus and like took off the front of a bus and then hit a nearby cab. But the driver continued to drive after these crashes before spinning out of control and smashing through the front window of a rub barbecue restaurant. The restaurant owner, Andrew Fischel, said that he heard what sounded like an explosion and he came downstairs and he saw that one of his cashiers at the restaurant had sustained injuries in the crash. In total, four people were severely injured in this car chase, including the car thief, and were taken to Bellevue Hospital in New York City. Three others were taken to a different hospital with less severe injuries and one person who was injured refused medical treatment. The suspect was 19-year-old Nicholas Stidwell, and he had a history of grand larceny, stealing a car, and assault. And after this incident, he was charged with grand larceny, leaving the scene of an accident and unauthorized use of a vehicle. And we got the information from this case from a New York Post article titled, Hummer Thiefs Sparks Crazy Chelsea Chase by Jessica Simone, and an NBC New York article titled Stolen Hummer Crash in Chelsea Hurts 8 by Mark Santilla. So our next case is a strangulation case, and it's one that happened relatively recently. And it's also, as all these cases are, this one's a really sad case. And I'm sure most of you have heard of this one. It's Gabby Petito, who was 22 years old, was killed by manual strangulation, according to the Wyoming coroner who examined her body after it was found in the Grand Teton National Park on September 19th, 2021. Petito disappeared in August of last year and was last seen on a road trip with her fiance, Brian Laundrie. She was reported missing on september eleventh of twenty twenty one. He returned from the road trip alone on September first, driving her van and refusing to say anything about her whereabouts. It's important to clarify that Petito was strangled and not choked, because strangulation is the term for when pressure is applied on the neck from the outside and choking is when there's an obstruction in the windpipe from the inside of the throat. Strangulation is intentional. Petito's death was ruled a homicide. Her body was in the wilderness for three to four weeks before she was found in September which would put her time of death in mid to late August. Six days after Petito was reported missing, Laundrie's parents told police that they had not seen him for several days. At this time, he was only charged with fraudulently using Petito's debit card after her death, and he was named a person of interest. On October 20, 2021, Laundrie's skeletal remains confirmed by forensic dentistry and some of his belongings were found in a park. A forensic anthropologist concluded that Laundrie died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound and that the manner of death was suicide. A notebook was found with his remains, and in that notebook, he admitted to killing Gabby Petito. We got this information from a Guardian.com article and her Wikipedia page. This one, I know it stuck with a lot of people because of social media and everything, but. Yeah, it got really big on social media and, like, the whole domestic abuse
1: and domestic violence.
0: Right. It's, there's a lot more into this case if you want to learn more about it, but also still, like, respect the families, because this is a relatively, this is a very recent one.
1: Yeah, there's de- there's way more to this case. We're just talking a few blurbs here.
0: Yeah, but it's, it's heavy. It's heavy, as a lot of them are, but... Yeah, I don't know. That one was just so fresh in everybody's mind. His
1: note that he wrote that was in the notebook, that's actually like somewhere online. It's viewable to the public what he was writing in his notebook.
0: That's crazy. Next on to our mold case. A Massachusetts pharmacy owner had been arrested and charged with second degree murder in connection with the 2012 meningitis outbreak tied to tainted steroid injections. The outbreak killed 64 people and sickened 687 others who received the injections across 20 states. Barry Caden, who owns the New England Compounding Center and supervising pharmacist, Glenn Chin, were charged with second-degree murder in the deaths of 25 victims in six states who received tainted vials of methylprednisolone acetate. In addition to Caden and Chin, 14 people associated with NECC were indicted with the laundry list of charges, including racketeering, conspiracy, and mail fraud. The indictment details how cleaning logs were falsified, expired ingredients were used with fictitious labels, and drugs weren't recalled when microbes were found. This information came from an ABC News article by Sydney Lupkin. Oh my god. This one is... That was,
1: like, the whole article, too. Like, they really didn't tell you much more information, and I feel like they should.
0: That's insane. I just... When people involved in medicine or just, like, any kind of healthcare are just immoral like this and cause so much devastation and death, that's, like, one of my worst fears, as I'm sure most people's worst fears are. But... What's, have you listened to the podcast, Dr. Death? No, but I've heard a lot about it. Oh, my gosh. I, it, was a, it was an excellent podcast, very well researched, very well done. But it's like it's terrifying. If you have a fear of like surgeries or going to the doctor, do not listen to it because it is scary. And that's, that's what this just made me think of. Like that's, I know it was, wasn't a doctor. It was a pharmacy. But wow. And our final true crime for this episode is our laundromat one. In 1988, a 22-year-old man named Oligario Munoz was arrested after being suspected of the murder of 18-year-old Rafael Benitez, who had died after being tumbled in a dryer for 10 minutes at a Huntington Park textile plant. Police said Benitez had died of head injuries sustained after being tumbled in the dryer, which had been latched from the outside. Huntington Park Police Sergeant Carl Hines said that the heat was on in the dryer, but that was not involved in the cause of death, that Benitez had died due to injuries sustained to his head. And we got this information from an LA Times article titled, Man Arrested in Tumble Dryer Death from the LA News Times archives. And that was also all I could find on that case. Yeah, that was also the entire article, and I need
1: more information. And I tried to look up Munoz and, like, what he is, like, where is he now, if other information is out there, and I can't find anything. And this is...
0: I, yeah, I thought this would be, once I saw the little blurb article, I was like, oh, there's going to be a ton of information online about this. I Nothing. It's just nothing. this one article. And nothing. I was really mad that I couldn't find more. Because this is, this to me seems insane. Mm-hmm. You put another person in a dryer and turned it on And this is different than the episode, because this was a grown man who knew what was going to happen. Yeah. This wasn't like a kid in the episode who thought it would just be stupid and fun for like a few minutes. This is. It was intentional, as I thought there would be way more info about that. Yeah, and there's nothing. Anybody else finds anything, please send it to us, because we are
1: curious. So, to end our episode, we tallied a total of four green flags and four red flags. So, in our opinion, this episode of CSI kind of half-passes in terms of forensic accuracy, since they did get a lot of things both equally right and wrong.
0: They are gonna get a red flag from Alice, though, just because red flag for saying 30 is old. (laughs) Just kidding. They don't pass. They don't pass in (laughs) Alice terms.
1: So, as always, thanks for hanging out with us. If you enjoy our podcast, share it with friends, and hit us up on Instagram to DM us with any show suggestions. You can also email us, too. Our email will be linked with all of our show notes. And we will be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye. Bye!